Ugh, another pointless video call where nothing gets done. I think you're on mute, David. Uh, oh, uh, sorry. What did I miss? IT just approved Miro for the whole company. Miro? That's the... Online whiteboard. For team collaboration. We can make these long video meetings so much shorter with Miro boards. We can share ideas, feedback, and updates on them whenever. Actually see what we're talking about. It's all online. Miro will make our flexible work setup so much easier. With one virtual space for our brainstorms, projects, presentations. Oh, that sounds kind of amazing. So I don't need to wake up for 6 a.m. calls with the London office anymore. Now you're getting it. Don't let time zones get in the way of your team working well together. See why 99% of the Fortune 100 trust Miro to get good work done from anywhere. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. The Boys in the Band podcast is brought to you in partnership with Giddy Stratospheres, the fantastic independent film by Laura Jean Marsh, set in the heart of the noughties indie scene. It's a story of furiously loyal friendship and a love song to an incredibly special time for music and mayhem, all set to the soundtrack of the best noughties indie tunes. A must-watch for any Naughties Indie fan. You can buy or rent the film on a host of platforms, including Amazon Prime, Sky Store and iTunes. But as part of our partnership with Giddy Stratospheres, we're delighted to be able to offer listeners to the Boys in the Band podcast an exclusive 20% discount to rent the film via Vimeo On Demand. Just follow the link in the podcast notes or post it on our social media and enter the promo code BOYSINTHEBAND at checkout. And you'll be able to stream the film for as little as £3.59. A terrific deal that's an absolute must for listeners to this podcast. This fantastic offer is available in the UK and Ireland only at the moment and runs until 10th of September. So go check it out. Giddy Stratospheres, a film about loss and love in the storm of guitars and broken glass that was the noughties UK indie music scene. Hello and welcome to this week's Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Rich Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith, and on this week's show, we're joined by Felix White from the Maccabees. Delighted to get him on. Big fans of the band. They are unquestionably one of the best bands of the era. And Felix takes us through their story, how they developed into award-winning songwriters and those electric live shows. I, I feel all my... I know the rest of the boys didn't always feel like this, but I felt like all my senses, like, enhancing and, like, just kind of, like, re- really strange, otherworldly sensation of playing about music with, with those people was amazing and I um so I, yeah so I used to kind of like tell myself off after gigs because I used to get way too overexcited and then we used to have like little dressings down where like Felix maybe you shouldn't be by the third song just screaming in that random person's face <laughs> like let's just let get let, let, I was getting to it for a second but I sort of couldn't help it, it was always really natural um response but as we got bigger that was like that got easier and easier to do because people were further and further away so <laughs> it seemed less um, confrontational as we got on um, but yeah it was amazing for you. I, yeah playing live that's what we did played live really for a long time we, we sort of turned ourselves into a better studio band much later down the line really yeah, the Maccabees really were such a brilliant live band. They really honed their craft. And, and Felix reckons their best ever show was a gig that we were at, Pete, which is uh, really cool to hear. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely. That was really nice to hear, yeah. It's uh, one of those farewell shows at Ali Pali in 2017. And uh, yeah, they were just special nights, weren't they, Rich? Great atmosphere. Yeah. 
lot of love going from the fans to the band and from the band to the fans and also um, there were so, so many guest musicians coming on and joining them for little tributes and it was uh, just showed the respect they'd got in the industry so it was interesting actually to hear Felix talk about how the Maccabees built up that reputation through their four albums and how their sound evolved as they became more skilled musicians as well because I think he quite freely admitted didn't he that in the beginning in the early days they were quite novice on their uh, instruments. Yeah, learning as they go, but he's uh, clearly a really talented guy, uh, really fascinating character. It's really interesting to hear his story. Because obviously since leaving the band, uh, he's carried on that music passion through setting up a record company, Yala. Uh, but one of his other big passions is cricket. And uh, that started back in the day where he did a bit of uh, cricket reporting for XFM. Uh, so he started writing for Wisdom and The Guardian. And he's also started up a hit podcast of his own called Tail Enders uh, with Greg James from Radio 1 and England cricketer Jimmy Anderson. And it actually led to him also then going on to ghostwrite uh, Jimmy Anderson's autobiography. And that in turn has led to Felix writing his own book. And uh, as I say, really talented guy. He's definitely got a talent for writing. It's a fascinating book that uh, I wholeheartedly recommend. It's called It's Always Summer Somewhere. And it's out now. Well, we like a day at the cricket, Rich, but you pestered him at a test match that I wasn't at, I think. Uh, I might have held you back and shown you, told you to show some uh, respect for the boy, but you went over there, didn't you, without me? Yeah, that's right. That was um, <laughs> 2013 Ashes. I think I confused him and she said the wrong date in the interview. I said 2018, but yeah, 2013, uh, went on over to him and, and I think Orlando was there as well and just asked him how the new album was coming along and uh, yeah, probably not what he wanted to hear when <laughs> England had just won the Ashes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's very polite about it. Very nice guy. Um, they obviously discovered during this podcast that he's not the only cricket fan or the Maccabees aren't the only crossover cricket indie fans. Rebecca Lucy Taylor of Self Esteem and Slow Club, another one that he called out as a big cricket fan. You know, I just feel yeah. like missed opportunity when we had her on yeah, the pod. <laughs> yeah, there is a, a, a select crew. And yeah, disappointed that that didn't come up in our chat with Rebecca back in the day. But uh, anyway, um, it's a really interesting chat. Felix is a really affable, lovely guy and uh, lots of details some fantastic stories. So uh, yeah, please enjoy. Here he is. Here's Felix White and the story of the Maccabees on the Boys in the Band podcast. Right, this week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Maccabees guitarist Felix White. How's it going, Felix? Yes, mate. I'm very good, thanks, Rich. How you doing? Yeah, really good, thanks, mate. Thanks for coming good. on. Hi, Pete. Yeah, we've been meaning to do it for because I think you messaged me a while ago about this, didn't we? And I was like, I think I was writing a book at that time, so I was a bit in tunnel vision. But it's nice that we've finally been able to do it. Yeah, yeah, great to get you on the show. It's uh, obviously big fans of the band, and looking forward to hearing the story. Um, but Felix, we kick off these podcasts with what we call a sound check, three quick fire questions to get us going. And the first one is always, where are you? And it looks like you've got some musical instruments behind you. Yeah, this is um, so this is like a makeshift studio. This, I'm in my flat in South East London in Peckham. But this is um, so like the spare room just been turned into a studio. I mean, what like when the Maccabees split, what like we had so much gear, but it all had to get like a divorce of a band is like splitting everything five ways and whatever so so many people got that like, i've got loads of amps and mics and all kinds of things i didn't know what to do with so eventually when i started like picking up the pieces a bit i do i do film scores and stuff like that now so i'm like working in here or do the early makeshift demos in here yeah, nice. yeah awesome yeah, good set up in there yeah um next up Felix, is what are you listening to at the moment any any bands or artists you're particularly uh fond of oh, right yeah. now 
Good question. Yeah, I'm listening to a lot. I'm listening to a lot of music. I listen to um, the record I'm really into most recently is Twenty Three by Blonde Redhead. Um, that is a phenomenal otherworldly record, which I just sort of stumbled across. I think on a YouTube trail. Um, but I don't know about everyone else, but in in the last, I found it hard to listen to um, records, records like I used to during lockdown. So I ended up listening to a lot of instrumental music. There's this guitar. Um, this guitarist called Marisa Anderson from America, who's just a, really beautiful evocative um guitar player so i listen to her a lot and then quite recently i was listening to a lot of bb king and things like oh, that right. like proper going to the source guitar music but yeah loads of different bits really I, i've got definitely in lockdown i ended up buying a lot of vinyl that was that was the thing i end up thinking every record i'm listening to or re- record i've ever loved i've got to own it on vinyl so i've been like back collecting all my fate. So I've had like Black Rebels records, like first three records and all the info records and stuff coming, which is really nice things to own actually. Awesome. Yeah. So if you've got like a big sort of bookshelf of all these vinyls all stacked together, are you a neat person with your vinyls or are they just piled up in a corner somewhere? No, they're all alphabet. They're, they're literally in alphabetical order. <laughs> and, it's my, and it's my parents as well giving them to me. So like I've got all my records in alphabetical order. It's quite sad because I've got a wall of like all that and then all my books that are music books alone. Um, very, very yeah, good I never thought, I never thought, I'd never had an organised mind, but it's, I've sort of developed it in the last few years. I don't really know why, but that was suddenly important <laughs> to me, but in alphabetical order. Nice, nice. Well, you mentioned it already. The third question is just about, oh, your book that you've been working on, as you said, um, it's always summer somewhere, a matter of life and cricket. Obviously, we know you do the Talenders podcast with Jimmy Anderson and Greg James, and we know you love a cricket. But just tell us a bit about that book and sort of why you decided to put it down in words. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'd, I'd, I'd never sort of, the way the books turned out, it wasn't a goal of mine to write a book like that. Um, what happened was I, we, so we, we started doing Talenders, which is like for people who haven't heard it, it's like it's a cricket podcast, but not really about cricket. And with Jimmy, who's a very successful England bowler. And, and with Greg James and it, it, it ended up being a show that sort of articulates why the game's important to people that aren't professional cricketers or me trying to explain to Jimmy why it means so much and all that kind of thing and I ended up um, ghostwriting his book so we worked on his book a few years ago and the publishers were just like do you want to write your own and so it kind of like spurned this idea that maybe I could write a memoir but through cricketing moments that I've seen and projected whatever feelings back into my own life. So it ended up becoming about um, like my mum's death or like lost generally. And then of course the Maccabees, like the story of the Maccabees in the second half, but talking about how, how the game has always articulated what's going on in my life back to me. So it's kind of like running parallel to each other. So that's, that's the story really. And it just kind of snowballed. I did, I, I wasn't imagining I'm writing it like I didn't think I'd be doing this 10 years ago but it just happened and I just sort of went with it so terrified now that people can actually read it <laughs> like which has half of it yeah yeah no, it's, a, it's a fascinating read and um I think it's yeah it's incredible how well you sort of punctuated these key moments in your life with these massive cricketing moments as, as well along the way and um speaking of which Felix I actually bumped into you at the Oval back in 2018 it was a England had just won the Ashes uh, last day at the Oval, and I was yeah. just a fan in the crowd. I was like, oh, it's Felix, it's the Maccabees. I've got to go and say, say hello. And um, so, yeah, I 
I wandered over to you and I did that fan things. I'm a massive fan of your work and just asked how the new album was, long, was coming along. Probably the last thing you wanted to hear at the cricket, but... Um... No, I was probably drunk, I think, maybe. Was I drunk? <laughs> Sorry, uh, Not sure, not sure. Well, not, not obviously. But, um, yeah. but yeah, obviously, the book really does centre around, around cricket, but the, the music runs right through it too, you know, from the, the tapes you'd listen to in your parents' car to Thursday nights watching Top of the Pops, learn the guitar, becoming part of the Maccabees, you know, it is really an, an incredible book about your whole journey. It covers whole many different facets, but a really, a really sort of fascinating insight into the music side of your life as well. And I think Maccabees, uh, Maccabees fans are going to have a, a lot of fun reading about it. Thank you, mate. Yeah, that was sort of that was the intention. Really, was to make the the, the backbone a bit cricket, but for it not to be about cricket at all, really. Um, so, so that was kind of the idea because it wasn't too heavy in any cricketing things. I just, I, I, I hoped that people would just understand it's just about why, why, and how you put your love into the things you do in your life type situation. But yeah, like you say, the Maccabees are a heavy part of that story, and it was quite a. Um, I was nervous about it to be honest because it's five people's story, the Maccabees story. So I didn't want to like tell it for anybody else. But when we got to the end of it. So I sent it all to the boys and spoke to them about it. And it's actually a really amazing thing to kind of like relive it with everyone and sort of like, I, I don't know, like wrap it up in a in a positive way, I guess. Yeah. Nice. Well, let's start with the story of that. We'll go back to the start of that music story then, uh, Felix, because interestingly, obviously you went to school with Florence Welsh, who we know from Florence and the Machine, Jesse Ware and Jack Panato. Is it right that you formed, I think Rich sort of from reading your book has told me that you formed a, school band with Jack Panato yeah correct? so me and Jack did yeah so we were like we were in love with um as every every other teenager in the whole of England were with Oasis and so I had was loosely forming this idea no well oh no I wasn't loosely forming it I was obsessed with the idea but of being in a band and Jack was Jack was um a very good friend of mine but also the only person I knew that could play guitar and he could play guitar really really fucking well like proper so I persuaded him. It took about six to nine months of organising gigs for our band, which we didn't even have yet, for Jack to go like, oh, I'll be in this band with you then. And we were called Jack's Basement because we were rehearsing Jack's Basement. And we played about five, six <laughs> gigs maybe. Um, and that's how it all started. And then, yeah, and then the Mac the Maccabees were formed alongside that because we, it, like, it was quite a drum and bass culture at the time. So we had this sort of two band scene where Jack's Basement and the Maccabees would play in pubs like at the Pleasure Unit in East London, uh, Bedford in Ballam, but just like to a handful of friends for like, you know, six, nine months a year, literally playing to no one, just a few bored regulars. And that's how it all sort of started for all of us, really. Yeah. Yeah. And then you ended up going down to, well, you were at Sussex Uni, is that right? And yeah. Orlando was at Brighton. Yeah, so Lan got, um, just as we were getting, Jack, understandably, because I could hardly play, decided he wanted to be a side of artist, which I was distraught <laughs> about. But um, but he suggested, on the phone call when we talked about it, he suggested to me, you should just join the Maccabees. And um, so I joined the Maccabees on the, <laughs> um, my brother, my brother said to me, all right, you can join, but your rhythm guitar, I'm lead. <laughs> so I was like, "All right, deal, deal, deal. Whatever you want, whatever you want." So we just—you so were, ju you, you were bonehead, and he was Noel. 
Yeah, I was. I, I would say I was even Gwigsy at that point. To be honest, I'd have, played, I'd, I'd have taken Tony McCarroll at that stage. I was desperate, so, so I, I joined anyway. Yeah, I was bonehead, um, but luckily I knew that he didn't even know the pentatonic scale, so he couldn't even play scales like Noel could. Um, and then yeah, so we, so Land went to Brighton University, and we were desperate to keep the band going. So we all got excuses for degrees or jobs or whatever in our different situations to, to come to Brighton and then in that first year at Brighton when we we're at Brighton and Sussex University that's when it really started to happen for the Maccabees in in real life yeah yeah it really built from there didn't it you sort of definitely became part of the the Brighton scene and uh X-Ray I believe was the one of the first singles released which I've got a copy of right here yes <laughs> mate. Do you know what I found that I, fo- I found my copy of that the other day as well Yes. Alphabetically ordered under M. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yeah, there it was on mine, just uh, just before my, Laura Marlin in my little seven-inch collection. Lovely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, at the time, it was, it was championed by XFM. Steve Lamack got on, got involved. Um, but what was, what was, tell us a bit about the songwriting process at that stage in the Maccabees. You know, you said yourself you were still sort of kind of learning guitar at the time, still, you know, pretty young or, or honing your craft. How did the, the band work together in terms of um, actually laying these songs down? Yeah, so that was like, X-Ray was part of, as I'm sure people have mentioned to you before in this podcast, like when bands are first starting, you write a batch of songs, then a batch of songs, then a batch of songs. So it's probably like the fourth set of songs that we'd written, but we're like every time just getting a little bit more competent or whatever. And um, X-Ray was a really good case in point because we had no idea of like um, song construction or we couldn't cover anyone's songs. We couldn't really play anything like that, but we we had sort of garnered this philosophy, which was which had come about from just going and watching bands or the bands that we were in love with, that we were just going to play as fast as we possibly could. And it was also the song was going to be dependent on everyone in the band. So you had like Interpol, um, The Strokes, loads of bands like the bands that I was definitely in love with. The like light like light bulb moment with all those groups was they all like. It was like one organism that was moving in and out. All the music was like, you know, and then the singer, it wasn't like necessarily like the singer front and centre singing a song. So X-Ray was quite like that. We just literally in a rehearsal room, everyone, it was Rue actually, who was really into drum and bass music. He, on a drum and bass tape, he came up with do 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 He came in with that and then it just happened in one afternoon where we just like kind of did all that stuff. And it was just... um yeah, like just racing each other to the finish. And that was, I think, and Land had written, um, Land had seen an article in a newspaper about a Russian girl who had claimed she could see holes in people's hearts. And when they checked, the people did have holes in their hearts. <laughs> so that was like, she sees through me line. And that was really typical Land songwriting and then typ- and typical the way we did it at the time as a band as well. Yeah, interesting sort of that background to it, uh, Felix, because it um, always felt like Maccabees got quite a distinctive sound. That's quite, you hear, hear music on the radio and you think, yeah, that's clearly the Maccabees. And it's quite interesting because you've got that mishup of those inspirations, those bands that you were clearly influenced by, but sort of doing it your own way because perhaps you, yeah, sort of you're putting it together as you were going along. Is, is that fair? Yeah, it's quite, it's, it was quite, it was a sweet thing at that time because like, yeah, as I'm sure you guys have sort of witnessed, when when um when a group gets past part a certain point when they start becoming successful, it's like they start being like distancing themselves from sounding like other bands and that kind of thing. But at that time when we wrote X-Ray, 
there was no idea of like we don't want to sound like our heroes or like let's make it seem like we're in the cooler stuff than we are <laughs> it was just like going to see the future heads or whatever and just being completely obsessed with the way they did it and just without any conception just trying to do that and then, and then it, if you've got a different group of people it just comes out a different way you know um so that yeah it was definitely informed by all of that stuff um yeah and like i said that was a fun thing about it at that time was we genuinely thought the faster the song was the better the song was <laughs> so we everything like x-ray that first seven inch that was like just us playing as quick as we possibly could and if we could have played it quicker we would have done <laughs> And obviously you got the obviously got the, such positive feedback, I guess, from uh, well fans listening, but also from record company people, I guess. Yeah, so we did um we did the next single we did went out on Fierce Panda. Um so we went and did Fierce Panda's nights, and that's when it's that was Latchmere, and that's when it started to happen a bit. And then not long after that, we were signed to Fiction Records, who we remained with for the next I don't know, decade, yeah, yeah, probably more over a decade, making four albums. So it had that that element of it probably did happen quite quickly from that point in, I, I, I guess, yeah. And did that um, did that ferocity with which you were trying to speed through your songs? How did that translate live? Because obviously, as a fan <coughs> of myself, that was all part of the experience. It was the speed, the intensity, and it just uh, it just had this, the way that it would just bounce off the stage, back back and forth from the audience. You know, made an incredible uh, live show. What was that like for you up on stage? Yeah, I mean, playing live was, I mean, I still miss it. And I still miss those early days as well. That feeling of, I remember that feeling of the revelation of being like, I'm just so happy in this. I remember just feeling completely euphoric. And I would feel euphoric from a very early point when there was like maybe 20, 30 people in the crowd all the way right to the end. It was just, there was just something about it that like, I, I feel all my I know the rest of the boys didn't always feel like this but I felt like all my senses like enhancing and like just kind of like really really strange otherworldly sensation of playing that music with with those people was amazing and I um so I, yeah so I used to kind of like tell myself off after gigs because I used to get way too overexcited and then we used to have like little dressings down where it like Felix, maybe you shouldn't be by the third song just screaming in that random person's face. Like, <laughs> let's just let get. Let, let, I'll just get into it for a second. But I sort of couldn't help it. It was always really natural um, response. But as we got bigger, that was like, that got easier and easier to do because people were further and further away. So it seemed less um, confrontational as we got on. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. For you. I, yeah, playing live. That's what we did played live really for a long time. We, we sort of turned ourselves into a better studio band much later down the line, really. Yeah. Just sort of any sort of standout shows from those early days. It was a big tour in the US with Block Party, wasn't there? Yeah, we did. We went around America with Block Party. We actually, that was a Noisettes on that tour as well. The early incarnation of Noisettes, who were amazing. Just before they did. Um, the second record when Scratch Your Name and all that come out. So that was a really cool bill. And we were playing, they were, Block Party was smashing that over there. They were playing theatres, like proper sort of like, everywhere you went was like a sort of at least Brixton Academy size sort of venue. Well, yeah, Block Party, we actually, it's in the book, we actually wrote off, halfway through it, we hit a deer in the middle of Bible Belt America in the middle of the night. Oh, which was, that's the, that's the thing that stands out about Battle, which was, one of the single most horrific moments in my entire life because you're going through 
I was sitting in the front of that of the van, and we had quite a few incidents like that on tour where, to be honest, like near death experiences on a bus or in vans because it was such a weird sensation when you're um in a van because your van or your bus is like your home, so you have this full sense of like when you get in that moving vehicle, you can just treat it like it's your bedroom or whatever, like what everyone's smoking and getting in bed, and then you have these like situations where you realize no we're fucking hurtling down the motorway at like 120 miles an hour um but in with the block party tour i was sitting in the front and it was middle of the night and we're going through the middle of nowhere in america and so it was it was so dark you could only see like 20 feet ahead of you at time and then suddenly just a deer standing there like side on looking I swear directly at me and I could still see it frame by frame and then bang, like hitting it so hard, nearly going off the edge of this fucking cliff. And then we pushed, the van was written off and it was covered red with like bits Mm. of like deer, whatever it was, like eyes, all kinds of shit. And we pushed it to a petrol station in the middle of nowhere and missed two or three of that block part dates of block parties. Because back in those days, there's no phone or anything we had to literally phone up our manager in brighton who drove another van into the middle of america <laughs> took him like two days to pick up all our gear and like carry on the tour um so yeah i, I felt like that wasn't the question the answer you're expecting <laughs> no it's not what I was expecting <laughs> at all, but, wow, but yeah that was, that was one yeah. of the adventures but but yeah sorry to circle back block party were amazing <laughs> 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 That's like, yeah. yeah, no, crazy, crazy time, and obviously loads of uh, huge shows. But um, the debut album obviously landed around that time as well. Color It In came out in, in 2007. So I think it was that sort of boom time of guitar bands being being in the charts and things. And um, how did you uh, react to that kind of to, to the reception that the that the album got? Um, well, yeah, at the time, like, uh, how did I react? It's good, good time to be asking this because I've been going through it all in my head. But I've, um, at the time, I felt like it was like an unbelievable success because I think it charted at like 25 or something. And we done a, we did a story when the record came out. So to me, it was like unthinkable success. But actually, when he sort of zoomed out of it, it was there was obviously so many guitar groups around. And I know the label and stuff, like, after I got over that, like, my personal thrill of the whole thing, it was like, oh, has this, is this working? So, and we were in a sort of strange position at that time because there were so many guitar groups that we we actually sounded like, and all, most of them had had the same upbringing that we had in, in the sense that they'd fallen in love with Oasis and then the Strokes or whatever, the Libertines had sort of, like, tightened what their ambitions were and that's what their ideas of being a band were. And we definitely didn't look like the coolest like rock band or whatever. <laughs> so we were sort of, um, I think from the outside, I think maybe we might have seemed like another indie band. But what we, but what we always had at that point was the people that cared about the band really, really cared about it. And if you and if you came and saw us, they were like really, for some reason, they were just really emotional experiences our gigs and stuff like that so that kept us in good stead but it was only coming yeah it was like when we came off the back of that first album there was a realization of like oh shit is this isn't just going to work because we're doing it you know like i I remember a management and label being like it hasn't radio one haven't played it and fucking 
enemy a bit like not sure you know so we weren't like particularly popular with anyone in the industry sense um so it was like yes yeah, slightly strange time i guess but we just sort of you're just doing it you know and i was and i was still in that middle of the thing that like, i was just buzzing that like, i was in a band people wanted to see us like even charting at number 25 i was like fucking 25 in england <laughs> it was amazing to me at the time um but yeah but but anyway like that it sort of it moved quite quickly into working out how we were going to sound different basically um and, and unfortunately i think landed britain toothpaste kisses right at the end of the color it in process which i played which me and him had sort of worked out quite quickly when he came in with it and that was a bit of a beacon because it was like that didn't sound like any of the um other like up tempo indie things and so that was just a little like oh maybe we can do something different maybe we're not just that band and that that's what sort of moved us down that track really yeah love that tune yeah good stuff well we'll pick up the rest of the maccabee story after this short break that's the end of part one or should we say end of first innings maybe that's more fitting See yes you in no, a i've got home now <laughs> it's a safe space really. it's a safe space <laughs> <laughs> I'm Felix White from the Maccabees, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, Check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we've got Felix White from the Maccabees on the line. Um, Felix, a bit of a tangent here, but lots of talk about Spotify and royalties at the moment um, uh, around music press and in, in on chatter on social media. Um, at the time Maccabees emerged, it was sort of that point in the in the decade that CD sales were on the decline, downloads were on the rise. I know your debut album, for instance, was available for download before physical because it had been initially leaked uh, somewhere. So you got it out on iTunes and then the physical copies came a little bit later. And then No Kind Words from the second album was a free download. So you guys are almost pioneering this this new era a little bit. So, what do you make of this this new landscape now that musicians are having to navigate? Where you know those traditional revenue opportunities from selling CDs and things quite aren't aren't quite there anymore. Yeah, I, I, I um, yeah. Firstly, on that thing, I think that I think that's true that we we put it out a week early on iTunes, which at the time was completely unheard of. But it, at that time. Everyone was obsessed with the record being leaked. That was such a big thing at that time. Where like no one's allowed to have it like two weeks before it comes out and like watermarking. I remember that being a really big deal. Um, but but you, you, I mean, what your like what your point alludes to really is it's it's always been like that. There's always been a changing landscape, and it's never quite suited musicians really <laughs> in, in different you know in different ways. And as as long as we've been doing it, there's always been that like baseline rhetoric of, oh no, 
what's good it's, it's all changing for the worse <laughs> and it feels like maybe music is just always that that storyline's always punctuating everything i think def definitely what tom gray's done um from gomez with the broken record thing has been amazing it feels like he's making proper change in remunerating musicians properly for for streams and stuff because I, I do know um plenty of people who have had songs that have like had you know like hundreds of millions of streams and for their contributions to it hardly been paid which mm. is insane um and i guess back then i guess back then it was unbelievably it was more solid wasn't it because you'd still get the download orders or bought the cd so it would have like you would have recuperated it in some in some sense i don't know man it's a it's a complicated it's a really complicated thing because you know i've got like friends now who've got kids and they might play them bob the builder all day to keep the kids happy and that sounds like so for their spotify numbers it's like they think they're listening to bob the builder a thousand times where you might listen to like in rainbows once a month <laughs> but it doesn't mean that bob the builder's ten thousand times more valuable than in rainbows does it so like <laughs> there's like got to be some sort of <laughs> way of like uh, managing that as an artistic thing um so i feel like i've given you a jumbled answer there but i think like, people like no one knows basically long story short at the moment i think the work that's being done to recuperate musicians properly for their work is very very positive and very timely mm. yeah absolutely yeah it's uh as you say, I'm not sure, too sure of the exact right answer at this point, but there's got to be a better, better answer than what's, what's how it's working at the moment. Exactly that, um, yeah. So I, 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 I so yeah, just quickly. I mean, I, I run a record label now, um, and that's one of the first things that we we're trying to do really fifty fifty artist deals and all that kind of thing, and just make sure um, it's all really sound from that perspective, and it feels like it needs enough people with that mentality really to shift it back. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah, hopefully we'll get a chance to come back to to yell a bit later on. But um, let's just go back to the second album now, now Felix, because um, you talked about that moment at the end of Colour It In and, and, and talking about toothpaste kisses and how you could perhaps evolve your sound, but you still kind of had that ever moving sonic tapestry that you kind of built on Colour It In 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 the follow up record. But how was the process different? How did you uh, how did you approach it differently to the debut? In um, so with the second one the first record had all been written when we weren't obviously like all bands didn't know we had a record deal we didn't know we had an audience we were doing it in london um just in stolen moments that kind of thing always thinking about it the second album we lived in brighton now and then we had our own rehearsal space where the gear was all the time and it was like right here's your six months go into that room and make a record and i think it I think it freaked us out for a little bit, actually, because it felt really intense and we, there wasn't much else of life to feed back into it. But what we always did have is because we had five people, all of all of whom were in their different ways, really, really committed to the band. We did go in there eight hours a day, even if we were just staring at the walls or just like play. we would used to do this all the time where we would play We'd have no ideas but one bit of music, which we would just literally play around and around and around and around. And it was like, when I think back on it now, I always think like we were just hoping, we were all hoping that it was just going to magically transform itself into a song if we played it around enough, <laughs> which, which sometimes it sort of did. 
and Lam would be writing songs and we'd have guitar parts and go and after eight hours in the studio, we'd go home, get stoned, work on guitar parts, come back and do it. And that was literally our lives. And it kind of, I think what happened was our manager played us a Teardrop Explodes record. There's a lot of brass in that. And it was like, da-da. That's, you're just always looking when you make a record for the framework that you're working with. You need to have, you need to know what, what the limitations of it are, what the palette of it is, and then you can start to work out what fits inside it. And as soon as we were like, oh, brass playing sounds really cool when you just like punch all those guitar lines in as brass parts alongside it. And um, definitely helped me with the thing of like, screaming in people's faces and punching the air because having the brass parts do those lines as well was just felt like really even more euphoric so we had that idea and then we met um marcus drabs who had at that time he'd done he'd just done a bjork record and he just worked on the second arcade fire record which everyone was obsessed with and um we just fell in love with him and we spent um two months in Paris making that record, um, which kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I think it was, it was atmospherically and textually and all that sonically. I think it was, yeah, it was far progressed from the one before, especially no kind words. I, felt, I always felt like no kind words was like, yeah. But when we, no, when we did no kind words, I thought like, fuck yeah, that if this wasn't, if this wasn't my band, I'd be in, I'd be in love with this. And, I, and up to that point, I think I was just sort of into the idea that we were a band at all. So that was quite a big um, moment, definitely for me, yeah. Yeah. It feels almost like with each album, you're sort of adding those extra layers because by Given to the Wild in 2012, you know, it's sort of critically acclaimed, Mercury Prize nominated. I think Pelican got an Ivan Novello. So it's for starting out from that, those sort of early beginnings that you talked about, just adding that layer every time and just honing that craft and getting better and better at what you're doing in terms of shaping the songs, how you wanted them to be. No, you're right. And we were so lucky like that. And it's only when zooming back on it, like I was saying about the first record that we weren't huge. We did used to think like, how come we're not, you know, like, like them lot, you know, I haven't got the attention those lot I've got, but actually that was the thing that saved us because we were always just allowed to do it got that next record deal had people that cared about the band but we weren't there wasn't that pressure of like you sound like this or waiting for that for that record we just had enough maneuverability to be ourselves so we just had that real like slipstream where we could incrementally improve and get bigger at the same time which is such a rare thing like you really have to get so lucky by coincidence for that to happen um so yeah that's what did happen and I, yeah, I can't. I think we were doing Brixton by that Wall of Arms tour, and did a couple of world tours, and yeah. And I think we sort of we also the cover of it we got painted. Yeah, yeah. We Ritz and the artist painted us, and I remember thinking that was really cool because I remember thinking it was like the um, like that pulp cover is and hers or something like that. And it was like another step of that being like, oh fucking yeah, like we look a bit like the Talking Heads there. That's cool. <laughs> So it was still like quite sort of hero worshipy, but it was, um, yeah, it just that feeling of like, oh yeah, we're becoming a real thing here. It was, it was great. Yeah. 
But yeah, as, as Pete said, it hadn't really built by, at that point. You know, the successes had, had built the, the critical acclaim. Um, but then heading into the fourth record, there, was, there seems to be a little bit of a, a, a delay, shall we say, and uh, got a little bit stuck perhaps. But that was around the time I bumped into you at the Oval and I was, I was annoyingly asking you, how's the new album going? And, uh, you know, the likes of me and record companies pestering you for it. What was that 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 period like of trying to lay down that fourth album? Oh, so that was that was Marks to Prove It time when we met. Yeah, God, I think right. I do remember that now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So what? Yeah, so we'd done we'd done Given to Wild, which the third one, which we made ourselves, and that's like a very dense record, sonic record. So the the whole philosophy of that record was doesn't matter anymore about live anything like that. We're just going to do it so much recording at home we're going to layer things up and it's going to just belong in a totally different space so once we've done that record and it had worked the difficulty with the last album marks to prove it when i met you at the cricket probably fucking struggling to write anything at all was that we didn't know contextually what we didn't know what we were trying to even achieve we were just going in and we thought that it's going to be a little bit like that but sort of accidentally and maybe, and maybe, fit, maybe semi-knowingly, even though I wouldn't have said it at the time because the band broke up pretty soon after that record, it kind of had a bit of everything in it eventually. And it just took a long time to get to that process. And I think, but, but to be honest with you, I think by that point we'd spent close to 15 years with each other every day, sleeping in the same rooms, working together, going out, drinking, partying with each other, talking about all kinds of personal things, back to your record, in record label meeting about like all, all, all the financial stuff of your life. So we're sharing every single conversation with each other. And I think by when, when I look back on that, I think, Jesus, no wonder we were worn and tired by the whole thing. Because your world gets smaller. As, as you get bigger as a band, your world gets smaller there's less actually available to you. You're not, the bigger you get in each territory, the less you play there. So you're not doing like six gigs a month in London anymore. You're doing one every six months, if that, because you sell the ticket. So it starts to become tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, and, and, and as a result, to answer your question, I think things become slower and slower somehow. Um, but having said that, I've, I love that last record. I thought, I thought we squeezed a lot of life out of that album and I think there's a lot of really cool moments on it if um if in hindsight now I can tell it's a band's last record even though I'd have never have it I would have like I would have died if I'd known that at a time but you know what I mean I can sort of hear that now and it yeah and you talked about um being painted for uh for the wall of arms cover the, the cover for Mark's prove it was was Elephant Castle wasn't it and uh you were based that's where you were based at the time recording it and and obviously that's where you'd, you'd grown up in, in South London. Um, so what was the thinking about Elephant Castle being the inspiration there? And, and how did actually, because we talked about as well, Brighton being very important to you guys at the start, but South London as well played a, a huge role. Yeah, so we moved into, when we come back, so we come back to London after we'd sort of done our thing in Brighton. And then we were looking for a space that could be ours, that we could make, make a record in. And we thought it was just going to be an office space or whatever. Land had moved into a flat two minutes down the road from this place and we, we saw it was up like to rent or whatever. So we went to look at this space that we assumed was just like evacuated office that we might be able to turn in studio. When we got there, it's like behind the McDonald's on Warworth Road. 
it was a fucking fully formed free floor recording studio that the guy didn't know what it was and it had been um like people had just been sort of sleeping there and like i had a pop-up gospel church had come in there a little bit but it was like a fully like huge live room huge control room um like all like leads like pulled out and all that kind of thing one piano in there and it turned out that it was jesus and mary chain studio for like um but they'd made records in there in the early 90s and for whatever reason they'd left the space and no one had known what to do with it and it just ended up being this sort of random space so it was like unbelievable like bit of magic that we happened to stumble across it so that became our home and then we started doing that place up that uh, Jesus and Mary Chain called it the drugstore which isn't cryptic probably so what they were getting into <laughs> it never it was um, but and, and so Elephant Castle became our home from that point in and we were spending like all our time there and we just got to know all the people and um, so ev- everyone in that small little area just became the people we were in contact with every day like the guy who ran the suit shop um, the dude that worked the car parking space the kebab shops and so it just ended up becoming like oh so that this is what this record is about it's about being in this space so it kind of made sense that that picture of the Haygate would be the cover especially as it looks so otherworldly that like late night photo of it and um, that sort of became the home that that record lived in really because there was a film that accompanied accompanied it actually but um which was an amazing film these guys made for us, which we sort of soundtracked. And it was about the basketball team down the road and the guerrilla gardener and the changing thing. But we sort of, I don't know what happened. We put it out as like a extra DVD extra. And of course, no one bought the DVD because by that point, <laughs> who bought DVDs? <laughs> so it's a shame. It's, it's lost somewhere about that film. But um, yeah. Good. Well, just from South London, North London, obviously those epic Ali Pali shows. Farewell shows in 2017. Me and Rich were there on the middle night, I think it was, Rich. Um, but, you know, they, you guys were clearly absolutely on it for those shows. You know, it's incredible atmosphere in the, in the crowd and some great music being played on the stage. You guys just look so sharp. So, you know, I think a lot of us walked away from that, that night thinking, you know, why are they splitting up? Did you, you must have had that feeling over the course of those three nights, you know, any regrets about calling it a day at this point? Well, for, I mean, firstly, I didn't feel shot. I remember walking on and thinking, it's so hot in here. I walked on looking <laughs> like a dog that jumped through a lake or like immediately. Like as this minute I stepped on stage, I felt just fucking soaked in sweat. But um, <laughs> yeah, I did feel that, man. I felt that all the time. And I feel, I feel, I, I occasionally still feel that now. But mm. it was, yeah, when I look back on it, I feel like it was, I mean, it was such an amazing place to leave that band. And I think I, I, for all the reasons that I'd, we'd sort of, we've just spoken about really, the likelihood if we hadn't have done that would be, we would still be making that next record, staring at each other now for, for having the last four years, because that's how long it took to make Marks to prove it. Mm. And so, in the, like for the sake of like preserving something that was, was that, that period of our lives. It was our twenties up to that, and it was like it was about saying goodbye to a point of our lives in a positive way and having ownership of it, and that the biggest band had been. And I think you knew, you saw, you felt that in those spaces because of most of the people in those rooms had grown up with us from the little club shows 
most of them were similar age to us there. And that was a fucking incredible thing I felt was like every single person was sort of saying goodbye to their own thing or realizing it was an end of a certain period of their life. Even as I'm saying that now, it like makes me like tingle because it was such an amazing feeling. So to sort of own that in one space, you just so rare you get an opportunity to do that really I think in life it's also to kind of have to like harness all that feeling was probably worth playing on for another 10 years because if, if we hadn't have called it quits the way we did I don't think we'd have ever had that moment um, yeah no in, in, incredible send-off and you had like the likes of the mystery jets on with you on those shows I think Marcus Mumford appeared at the show we went to so were there any other was it was it a party atmosphere of all the bands that you were friends with growing up and at backstage? Yeah, it was. It, it was definitely that. We had all the um, Jamie. Did Jamie T come and do the next day? Jamie T did the next day. I think um, it was strange atmosphere because it was a sort of party bit. It was the end of something, so it was really hard, to, difficult to know how to feel about it all. Um, but, but the the cool thing, actually, I will say, is that Idols were the band first on at that on those shows. And but we we done some my label had done some stuff with them and that was we felt like that was a really like nice shift where as we were leaving we were going to introduce people to a band that we thought were onto something as well so and they were headlining Ali Paddy like a couple of years later which obviously is not is very little to do with us but just felt like that gave really nice shape to the like the, to the evenings, you know what I mean? And even in hindsight now, thinking, oh, cool, that was Idols. And then, you know, it was like, it was, that was, it was like passing, it was like handing on of a legacy a little bit, you know, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's a big call, isn't it? It's a brave call to sort of bow out at that moment because you always, I guess you always think, well, what could be the next, you know, the next step up? Is there a step beyond Ali Pali that we could go and go and reach? But um, as you say, it's, I guess, even considering or contemplating as you say a four-year period of working on another album actually allows you to draw a line and as you say the record uh, your record company there Yala Records gives you a chance to move into these things and obviously watch a lot more cricket I guess as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I mean that wasn't the idea it's like, like fuck this I'm gonna watch cricket um, <laughs> um, that's that's what you do when you're 70 um, <laughs> Early retirement, but yeah, no, exactly. It felt like, yeah, I, I feel great. Yeah, I was, I was, to be honest with you, I was cut off about it at the time, but I was, um, I feel grateful for it now because my life's had so many things in it since. Uh, but I think if we had done it later or whatever it was, I don't think I'd have had the energy and the time and to move into all those, all those things. So, um, I do feel grateful for it now, and I, yeah, I feel very grateful for the entire story of Maca. It's kind of a perfect story, really, from start to finish. So. Mm. Yeah. And is that definitely the finish? Would there be any other, other any sort of talk of reunions? You know, at the moment we're looking at sort of a 25th anniversary of, of Nebworth and things like that. You know, could you see yourselves in that position in, in, in a few years time thinking, let's let's get a band back together for a celebration of, of something? But we literally never, never, ever talked about it. And I don't think um, the, the, the completely honest answer is because I because it wasn't necessarily my call to end it at the time. I don't know if it would be even up to me, but, but for personally, for, for me, I think, what, what do I think? I, yeah, I don't, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't actually see it happening. I think there's so much more in our lives that has, has happened since then. Um, but we sort of left it behind really. And yeah, it's quite cool like that, but you know, yeah. Yeah, totally. You, you as I said, we put, you put a, a firm, perfect marker on the on the end of it with those farewell shows so uh 
why ruin that moment, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. But before we wrap things up, Shree, did you just uh, touch on on your record record label? What's uh, what's going on with the record label at the moment? Yeah, so we've um, I kind of I think we're in our third, fourth year now of, of Yala, and um, that's something in a similar way. It started just doing three hundred seven inches of bands that we loved and um, doing these little club nights in London that are now in Glasgow, Manchester. And at the moment, it's, it's expanded to the point now that we're, we're doing full albums. So Willie J. Healy's making his second album for us. And, and Will's an like, unreal songwriter, I think. But um, we just put out a single uh, by a girl called Kathy Jane, um, who's from just outside of Stoke. She's 17. And I think really fantastic. And there's a few bits on their way from some groups we worked with for a while and some new things. So... Um, yeah, we're constantly moving. Brilliant stuff. Nice one. We're going to finish off with the encore, as always, Felix. So uh, first up in the encore, we're in a pretty niche crowd here, indie cricket music fans. <laughs> <laughs> so Are there any others? There, there must be others. I mean, I've heard you mention a few on Tailenders. We were talking to the Cooper Temple Claws recently, discovered they were big cricket fans as oh, well. Oh, shit. No way. Yeah. Fish what, what? Is Dids one? Dids Dids like yeah, they mentioned that Fish was pretty handy. Um, so I like the temple claws, man. Who needs enemies? Fucking, I yeah, like that. Absolutely, yeah. So anyway, go on. So yeah. So who else is there? Who who, who are like-minded souls when you're in festivals and, and that? I'll tell you. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. No, it wasn't that apparent when we were touring. So I used to take cricket gear, but like you used to get stared at by the view, thinking, "Who are these fucking?" <laughs> or like American bands. Like we look like. I think we look like a sort of Monty Python sketch when I tried to do it. So like well, I've got I've got over time to do that at festivals. But an interesting one I found out the other day, Rebecca Lucy Taylor, self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. Loves cricket. Nadine Shah loves cricket. Um Jack from Friendly Fires. Gus from Alt J. Gus from Alt J. Yeah. We are out there. We are we're not necessarily all proud about it, but we're out there. So we had but Rebecca on the podcast. Uh, what was it last year? I feel like I missed opportunity. Maybe we yeah. need to relaunch the podcast series as Indie Cricket. Yeah, who do you think and, you uh, are, man? Indie not get, getting self-esteem on and not asking her about cricket. Dereliction <laughs> oh, <no, no. laughs> <laughs> of duty. <laughs> um, Felix, second question in the encore. What was the best gig you did? We may already have touched on it. What was the best gig you did um, uh, in the Maccabees? I think, may, I think maybe the gig that you were at, the, set, the second of the last Ali Paddy shows. Brilliant. Maybe the best ever Maccabee show, I think. Yeah. Oh, wow. It felt like it. it felt yeah, like absolutely. it on the night. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking, like, how are they going to do this again tomorrow night? It was insane. <laughs> we did five in a row, that's because it was like for cost or whatever. We did we did all the warm ups and then all the farewell gigs. I think we did seven, actually seven or eight in a row without without stopping. Sure. But it kind of added to the whole thing because it was so high intensity. Yeah. The experience you just didn't want to stop. Yeah. yeah all right, last up, Felix, this the song that you're proudest of. Can you pick one out? I think my favourite Maccabee song is No Kind Words, but I think the song I'm proudest of, um, it's a weird one, but I'm, I don't know, do you know what? I'll say um, Dawn Chorus, the last song on Marks to Prove It, I think, because I just personally for me, like when I was writing much more chord progressions and stuff at Given to World and Marks to Prove It type time, I started to feel like, I was a songwriter, I'm really starting to flourish and understand and be confident. And the fact that I end up with the last song on the record and land sung the vocal in one pass it just feels like a really natural piece of music to me. Not not the most um, popular like or famous Macri song, but I just love that piece of music, yeah. Lovely fun choice. 
Thanks so much for, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure for myself and Pete. Massive fans, as I'm sure you can tell. Um, big tail ender as well. Love love what you've done there. And as I say, the book is incredible. I wholeheartedly re recommend it to all Mackie's fans. And uh, yeah, all the best with the release of it. Um, massive go well. Been a Cheers. It's been a total pleasure. We did it. I still can't believe we got this project done so fast and so well. When I'm in New York. I'm in Chicago. And I'm in LA. But we're making it happen in Miro. Together. Our best work just happens faster on Miro's collaborative online whiteboard. No more scheduling meeting after meeting for work that could happen from anywhere. Whether it's getting design feedback here, mapping timelines here or brainstorming next steps here. It all just happens on the Miro board. Exactly. And it's nice not having to wait an entire day to get sign-off from this guy. Hey! Well, it is true. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com. The first three boards are free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com.